Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Stop in the name of law before you break it, thinking over. Yes, that is a song from the Supremes. We've changed the words a little bit to be fitting to the file that we're going to open on Andrew and the Supremes. And that's Andrew with an E, not an A. Jen, let's talk about the facts on Andrew F. Yes. And Julie, I'm so pleased that you have the talent to sing because I do not. And so while you were doing that, I was pretending to do the backup dance moves um, because trust me, if if I were singing, people would be turning off this podcast immediately. <laughs> well, since we named the, the, the file on the Supremes, we just felt terribly compelled to have a little bit of a, a of an ode to the Supremes. I think it was beautiful. Thank you for doing it. So yes, um, Andrew F. is a case um, of, out of the United States Supreme Court from 2017. It's Andrew with an E, F, versus the uh, Douglas County School District. And it's a very, very important Supreme Court case that we want you to be aware of because, um, and we're going to get to why it's so important when we get to the law. But here are the facts. Um, Andrew was a student in Colorado who had an IEP as a result of having an autism spectrum disorder and in the school district's program was not receiving, in his parents' view, an appropriate program. And um, ultimately, the parents placed him in a uh, private school that uh, provided services to students with autism and sought reimbursement from the school district uh, for that placement. And the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and I'll explain in a minute why and how. And um, ultimately, the Supreme Court uh, rendered a decision in Andrew and his parents' favor in the Andrew F. case, and it is 2017. And I love the way um, you explained to me why it went to the Supreme Court. So please tell everyone else. Okay. So that's a great segue into the law on this file. So um, this is a little bit of a civics lesson, and so please bear with me, but um, a little reminder for those of us who, like myself, who've been out of um, eighth grade or 10th grade whenever you learned about civics for a very long time, okay? So in our system of government, in our court system, our government, our, our country is broken up into several circuits based on, usually based on geography, okay? So those are federal circuits, and the way it works is if you are suing or pursuing um, a cause of action in a federal court... Uh, and you are appealing that decision, you go up through the circuit court and then up to the Supreme Court. So as an example, here in Connecticut, we are in the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit is comprised of Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. And so all federal cases that might end up where they are pursued up to an appeal go up to the Second Circuit. So you start at the district court in your state or in New York. There are several district courts. Um, 
And then if you're unhappy with your decision there, you're uh, entitled to appeal it to the circuit court. And at the, the next level after your circuit court, if there's an appeal, is to ask the United States Supreme Court to hear your case. The United States Supreme Court does not hear most of the cases it, it is asked to hear. Um, mm-hmm. They do not grant the petition to hear the case in a vast majority of the cases. Cases where they are inclined to grant such a request, however, is when there is something called a split in the circuits. Now, the IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, is the federal statute that governs special education in the United States and and in our territories. And so that is um, why most of the cases that are involved in litigation in special education end up if they're going to be appealed in federal court because there is a federal question. When there is a split in the circuits, what that means is that even though the law is federally mandated and even though it is supposed to be fairly uniformly applied with some discretion given to states as to how to implement the statute, if one circuit has a an interpretation of one aspect of the law that is wildly different from how another circuit interprets the same federal law, that's what we call a split in the circuits. And the, the Supreme Court doesn't like to see significant splits in the circuits on important issues because what that means is that, that Congress has passed a law that it expects to be followed throughout the country. And depending on whether you live, it may or may not be followed. I mean, that's a simple way of of putting it in our in our system of government, okay? So the way it happened in the Andrew F. case is, and it's a fascinating uh, story actually, is the Tenth Circuit, which is where Colorado is located, had a standard for what constitutes a free and appropriate public education under the IDEA. Now, FAPE is the acronym we refer to when we talk about that, is what every child who is identified as eligible for special education services is entitled to receive each and every school year from their school district, a free and appropriate public education. The word in that acronym that usually causes the most consternation among educators and parents and certainly litigation is the A. The A in, in free and appropriate public education is, is, the, is the one that is really subjective. You know, what's appropriate for one child may not be appropriate for another child. What I think is appropriate may not be the same thing as what you think is appropriate. And certainly when a parent is challenging their child's IEP, their individualized education program, that document that spells out the services and their placement, um, it's going to be a dispute as to whether what was offered was appropriate or not. And that question, what is the legal standard for an appropriate program, has not been answered many times by the Supreme Court, because there aren't a lot of cases that go up to the Supreme Court in special education, because it's kind of a niche area of law. And um, so it's not like, you know, criminal law where they are inundated with requests all the time. So the last time that the Supreme Court had heard or even opined on what that appropriate means was in 1982 in a case called Rowley. And that had been the standard that was the last time that we heard from the Supreme Court. And then what would what was happening is that each circuit was slowly starting to develop its own standards as to what an appropriate program was. In our circuit, the standard was meaningful education, okay? In some circuits, the standard was some benefit to the education. That was the language being used. In others, there were words thrown around like significant, substantial. In the 10th circuit, which is where Andrew F. lived, um, the, the standard that was uh, held out by the court in in a in a case prior to Andrew F was that an IEP is appropriate if it means that the child makes merely more than de minimis progress. That's a mouthful, right? Merely more than de minimis progress. 
And that's really the word de minimis, the words de minimis are Latin and they mean bare minimum. Okay. So under that standard, if your child was receiving virtually anything from your school district, the, they would be receiving an appropriate program under um, 10th Circuit analysis. Okay. And so that's a really disturbing standard. Um, we certainly feel. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That's an excellent point, Julie. Um, and also, as as the court pointed out, you know, Congress passed this law decades ago, and they certainly didn't do so and um, significantly uh, provide funding for it for all of this time for us to basically have students passing time in the classroom and not making any progress, right? Um, and so, at any rate, I'll, we'll get to that. Um, what's fascinating about the background of the case, among other things, is that the judge who heard the case at the 10th Circuit and came up with the merely more than de minimis standard is actually now Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch, who was on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, and he wrote the decision. Um, ironically, when the Andrew F. case came to the Supreme Court, um, he was already nominated um, for the bench, but had not yet been confirmed. And the Andrew F. case, the decision that went in the parents' favor and, and essentially overturned Justice Gorsuch's decision, came out literally while he was on the stand in Congress being asked questions by um, the senators uh, on the confirmation hearings. Um, it literally came out like hot off the presses from the Supreme Court. And, and some, some of the senators were actually able to ask him questions about it in real time. It was really a convergence of, of a lot of fascinating um, events politically as well as um, in the law for those of us who are legal geeks like me, find stuff like that really interesting. So the, um, the court heard the case. I was very fortunate. Um, Julie and I are both members of an organization called COPA. COPA is the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. It's a national organization that advocates for students with disabilities throughout the country. And we have an amicus committee. I'm on the. I'm fortunate to be on the board of COPA. And we have an amicus committee. Amicus is another Latin word, which means friend. Um, and so in our system, if you believe strongly in something as an organization, um, you can ask for permission to submit an amicus brief to a court, not just the Supreme Court, but any court. Uh, they don't always accept them, but you can ask to be a friend of the court is really what amicus means. And we did. We asked to be a friend of the court and to submit why we at COPA felt that Andrew F. should go in favor of the parents. And, and that brief was submitted. And I was fortunate enough to be in the courtroom when it was argued. Um, I wasn't arguing it, nor was COPA, but it was fascinating to be there and to hear all the questions um, with the justices. It, one of one of the moments of my life I will never forget. It was really, I'm getting choked up about it. Um, but what was really clear, Julie, and this is, you know, I'm a sap, was that the justices were not having it. <laughs> they were not having this argument. They were not having the argument that it's okay for a child with a disability to get merely more than de minimis. And the questions by the justices, almost uniformly of the board's attorney, the school district's attorney, were pretty harsh. They were not at all convinced, you could tell. You, they were not convinced that this is at all what Congress had in mind when saying that students with disabilities are entitled to an appropriate program. And, you know, we left the courthouse, those of us who were there for COPA, kind of feeling celebratory, but it's really well known among lawyers. You never walk out of an oral argument and think you know what they're going to do because you often will get decisions that are exactly opposite of what you where you thought they were going with it. And so you're never comfortable until you get the actual decision. But it felt very much to all of us like, wow, they really seem to get it. They seem to get that this law 
uh, should should be robust services for students with disabilities and not just you know phoning it in as a merely more than de minimis standard would imply. And so the decision came out in 2017. And um, we're going to go through now some of the really salient points um, that the decision uh, really beautifully um, required that school districts have to um, follow in order for an appropriate program to be uh, offered to a child with a disability. So I know I, I've talked a lot, Julie, but um, you know, you and I, uh, on a personal note, in terms of um, our adventures together. We had already submitted our um, final manuscript for our book, um, which is Your Special Education Rights, What Your School District Isn't Telling You. It was ready to go to the printer when the decision came down, if you recall. And we begged, begged our publisher to please put a hold up, hold up. We have to add, we have to add a new a chapter on this. We have to add a forward on this because this decision is so monumental that it changed so much of what we had already written in the book. Remember that? I most certainly do. <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy. So we have, you know, a few years now since the Andrew F. decision has come out. And Julie, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the ramifications of the case and, and provide parents and educators some talking points um, and explain where they can find some resources on this. Right. And before I do, I just want to say thank you so much for that lesson in civics. <laughs> You're um, welcome. I find it you know, just so helpful to understand that um, why cases go to the Supreme Court, which is, um, that was helpful, at least to me. I'm glad. So listen, there's a great uh, website called understood.org. And what they've done with the Andrew F case is just so incredibly helpful. Oh yeah. Um, And Jen and I are actually have these resources in front of us right now. So you could do a Google search on Andrew, and again, that's with an E, Andrew F. Worksheet, understood. Um, Andrew F. Talking Points, understood. Or go on to their site and then, you know, do a search on Andrew F. Um, and they have some really fabulous um, uh, resources that when you print them out, you can literally take them to your IEP meeting. You can use them to plan for your meeting. You can use them to ask your team questions. And so we really want to give a plug to understood.org for just um, making this so user-friendly from for parents. It's really great. So there are some key takeaways that came out of the Andrew F. case that now on a national platform, a national level, we can all agree that these are criteria, right, that must be met to, to, um, to have a free and appropriate public education. So one of the things, um, one of the, the key takeaways um, that came out of Andrew F., and we're, we're not doing these in any particular order, is that for most children, a FAPE, a free appropriate public education, will involve integration in the regular classroom and individualized special education calculated to achieve advancement from grade to grade. Tell us why that's so important, Jen. Well, it's important for a number of reasons. First is that um, they're one of the cornerstones of the IDA is what we call the LRE, Least Restrictive Environment Provision. 
Um, and that is the part of the statute that says that to the maximum extent appropriate children with disabilities should be educated with their non-disabled peers and that removal from that environment should only occur when supplementary aids and services are not um, sufficient to meet their needs. Uh, in English, what that means is that we want kids who have disabilities integrated in their public schools, just like their non-disabled peers, and that we're not segregating them and unnecessarily warehousing special education programs. That's one of the reasons that parents fought for the statute to begin with all those years ago was because students with disabilities were, were being segregated. And so the cornerstone is that least restrictive environment provision. So what this part of the NDRF case is saying is that for most students, and it's not all, because as we know, appropriate it means what's based on the child's unique needs. And for some students, a more restrictive setting is what is appropriate. But for most, they should be integrated in the classroom and their services should be calculated to achieve advancement from grade to grade. Why is that important? Because it's not just that you're being promoted from second to third grade or from third to fourth grade, but it is as noted in the fantastic understood talking points. If you take that language in conjunction with the U.S. Department of Education grade level standards guidance, IEP goals are supposed to be aligned with grade level content. So you're not just going from second to third grade because you aged. You're actually supposed to be acquiring the same skills as your non-disabled peers for most students. That's the goal. That's the hope of the statute. So that was really helpful because it made it clear that, you know, for most students, we want them not just advancing from grade to grade, but but being close to closing that gap academically between their non-disabled peers. Fantastic. The next one is a school must offer an IEP, an individualized education program, an IEP reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress. Jen, there's a little bit more that the actual that actually was written in the decision about that. Can you explain it? Yes, they use the language in light of the child's circumstances. And that language, um, you know, lawyers tend to really pick language apart. And when that, as soon as I read it, I thought, oh, with that one, because I, I knew that would just open up the argument for school districts that it, in light of the child's circumstances would be something that they would um, focus on for students who have um, lower uh, aptitude as measured by IQ mm -hmm. testing. And I say that very deliberately mm -hmm. because, you know, IQ is one factor, one part of a human and, and by no means all of it, nor is it always um, a, a good predictor of what your outcomes are going to be. Um, and But that said, unfortunately, many times school districts will will take a student whose IQ is lower and, and, and take the position that we therefore should not expect much progress from the student, which is not true um, in terms of the reality of how many, many students can learn if properly instructed. But it worried me, and it has been something that has been used by many school districts in cases throughout the country since Andrew F., to explain that for students who might not be in the mainstream or might not be um, performing at the level of their non-disabled peers that we shouldn't expect them to in light of their circumstances. Um, that said, you know, the, the um, and we're going to talk about more language that's much more helpful in the decision, but that said, the, the IEP still has to be crafted in a way, um, because the reasonably calculated language is old language that's been around for, for well before Andrew F., um, but it's a prospective judgment by school districts. And prospective meaning looking forward, that you're when you develop that IEP, you're supposed to be looking forward in the future. Um, you do it one year at a time, but you're supposed to be looking long-term for the child in terms of what kind of outcomes you're, you're hoping and expecting 
the um, special education to produce. And so um, that language ha has been one that I think both sides have been using, meaning both school districts and, pa and, and parents in litigation. But it is um, certainly a, a reminder that you the IEP team is supposed to be thoughtful in the process of developing the plan. And, you know, I have a little bit of experience with that um that sort of line of thinking um, with my own son who is out of school now, but um, when he was a little guy uh, about three, four years old, and we went to due process, um, you know, um, arguing that his, uh, he did was not receiving a free appropriate public education. And my son does have an intellectual disability has autism as well as nonverbal doesn't read, doesn't write. Um, in spite of that uh, explanation, he's a fabulous guy with a ton of skills. And um, as my mother used to say, you know, there's no flies on him. And meaning you, there's more in there than you think. And yes, he can make progress, even though he, we've never been able to test his intellectual um, ability. He's very, very capable. So I would have hated to, um, you know, make a decision about my son and what progress we could expect him to make um, based on the fact that he does have an, a, a lower IQ. And um, that right. sort of seeped into um, my um, hearing um, where we did have a hearing officer who was uh, very much pigeonholing my son into a position where he didn't think he would be able to make as much progress as we would have liked him to. So that's not a far-fetched thing, Jen. That that not by any means. It's it's one of my my favorite quotes of all time on disabilities from President Bush who said that's what what he called the soft bigotry of low expectations. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So okay, um let me continue to go through here. The next one is the IEP must be appropriately ambitious in light of his circumstances just as advancement from grade to grade is appropriately ambitious for most children in the regular classroom. I like this one. I love this one. <laughs> um, I, I love this one. And this is why the reason, many reasons I love this. First of all, that word ambitious, that's a beautiful right. word. That is a beautiful word that I, I practically did a backflip <laughs> when I read that in the decision because ambitious is what we should be shooting for. Julie and I get very, very frustrated when we walk through the the doors of many school buildings with a big, you know, banner above the the doorway saying, you know, excellence and uh, uh, we our goal, you know, the mission statement is always something really beautiful about how we're going to maximize potential right. and, you know, excellence. And then you walk into the IEP meeting and you're told, oh, wait, we only have to provide your child an appropriate program. It really smacks of discrimination. And what's beautiful about this language is, is we are holding accountable school districts for making sure that we have ambitious expectations of the outcome for students with disabilities as well we should. And, um, you know, the, the other language that's great about this is, is this just as advancement from grade to grade is appropriately ambitious for most children in the regular classroom. Again, getting at the least restrictive environment provision and really um, wanting schools and, and, and parents to take a look at how the child is performing as compared to their non-disabled peers. So that's really beautiful language. And when I'm in IEP meetings now, I'm always pointing out that the goals for the student should be ambitious. It, it, it is something that um, it, it's a beautiful word that we can now use, right? 
that um, yeah. let's aim a little higher, shall we? And I've had to have yeah. conversations or I've been able to have conversations in IEP meetings where I say, well, let's let's think about that growth that you're expecting. You know, maybe we'd be expecting a little bit more. We They should be ambitious. And then, you know, we have a nice conversation about that. And I think um, it's just a beautiful thing. Okie dokie, let's do another one. A reviewing court may fairly expect those school authorities to be able to offer a cogent and responsive explanation for their decisions. And just to be the, um, you know, the uh, dictionary police here for a minute, cogent actually (laughs) means clear, logical, and convincing. Jen, I love this one. Tell us why we should love it. I love it too. Well, I love it for a lot of reasons. One of which is how many times I've sat in an IEP table, um, around an IEP table. And when we've asked for something, we've been told no, and there's no just no reason given as to why just no. Um, and under Andrew F that's no longer acceptable. They have to be able to, the school district must be able to give you a cogent reason, a compelling reason why they're refusing what you're requesting or proposing what they're proposing. You're entitled to that as a parent. And while this particular quote that you read is with regard to that, what, if any level of deference, a reviewing court will give, it also relates to what uh, school authorities are required to do for parents. And I I just love it because it really does um, allow us now in IEP meetings to ask, can you please give me a cogent explanation of why you made that decision? And uh, unfortunately, and, and Julie and I take pains, I think, in almost every episode of our podcast to make sure that we make it clear that we know that we're brought in when there are problems and that the vast majority of students and, and educators are out there um, getting along well and not requiring litigation or lawyers or advocates. But in those cases where there is a dispute, uh, there's really frequent situations where the the teachers say nothing and the administrator just says no. And that's incredibly frustrating for families because, you know, you, there might be a really good reason why not. And it might actually convince the parents if you told them what it was. Uh, but, you know, because they're not educators, most of them, but just being told no um, makes parents very um, distrustful. Well, you know, I'm sure there's not a parent around who hasn't said to their child, no. And they say, why? Because I said so. Um, It it just doesn't work in this context, however. Mm -mm. So (laughs) no, it doesn't doesn't meet legal muster in this particular situation. Thankfully now, now after Andrew F. Okay. Okay. We're not doing all of them, but I think we should do one more. The school district protests that these provisions impose only procedural requirements a checklist of items the IEP must address, not a substantive standard enforceable in court, but the procedures are therefore a reason and their focus provides insight into what it means for the purpose of the FAPE definition to meet the unique needs of the child with a disability. Okay, Jen, you got to break that down for us. Yeah, I know that's a lot of legalese for sure, but it's there's a lot of meat there. And I, I really love this portion of the decision because um, it, it addresses a few points that I think are really important and that parent attorneys are frequently feeling like they're betting their head against the wall, wall on with um, these disputes. So there are two concurrent 
obligations on school districts under the IDA to put things simply. One are their procedural requirements and one is their substantive obligation to provide an appropriate program to a child, okay? So the procedural requirements are things like you have to give parents written notice of the IEP meeting. Things like the IEP must include the following items. Things like the IEP team must have the following individuals as uh, uh, representatives. Things like you have to review the IEP at least once a year. Those are the procedural IEP team okay? meetings must be at the mutual convenience of the school and the parents. Another great one. Okay. So those are the procedures. And um, many educators um, hate hate them because they see them as a lot more paperwork and or nitpicky. But um, this case is saying, and I've said many times before, and there's a beautiful, there's beautiful language in um, in a, a case that's not a Supreme Court case, but out of Massachusetts that I often cite to, to hearing officers that says that Congress didn't pass the procedures as mere procedural hoops through which school districts should jump, but they pass them because if followed, the IEP will probably be appropriate. And think mm-hmm. about that. If you follow the procedures, the IEP will probably meet the substantive obligation of offering an appropriate program under the law. Because think about how many of them impact how the meeting is run. The parents' right to be a meaningful member of that IEP team will usually mean that educators who don't have the history with the child that the parent does for year after year after year, but might be new to the child, that input is essential to making sure that the IEP is appropriate. How many times do we see where an educator, very well-meaning educator, will propose an approach that the parent and other educators have tried many, many times with the child and it's not worked? Well, that's really important information for that person who's proposing that intervention, right? So- that's why I love this is that it's saying, you know, those, these procedures exist for a reason and, and it's because it's usually going to result in the unique needs of the child being met. Now, flip to the other part of this language that I love of the, that you quoted, Julie, is that, you know, essentially what the, the court was saying is that school districts are complaining that we shouldn't have to follow this, you know, this um, sub high substantive standard about what appropriate is. We just have to follow the procedures. If we follow the procedures, everything will be fine. Almost a flip of the argument that the procedures are too much for us, right? And it reminds me so much of one of my favorite quotes from another Supreme Court of the United States decision on special education written by Justice O'Connor, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, in a case from 1993 called Florence County. It's, we refer to it as the Shannon, Shannon Carter case, so Shannon Carter versus Florence County School District. And in that case, she she uh, addressed the school district's argument and the many amicus briefs, which we covered earlier as to what amicus means, submitted by school districts saying, you know, if you allow for parents to get reimbursement for private placements, which was one of the issues in Shannon Carter and was one of the issues in Andrew F., uh, if you allow parents to be reimbursed from school districts, you know, this is terribly unfair to school districts because we're going to have to pay out all of these reimbursement claims from parents, and, and you shouldn't do that as a Supreme Court. And what she said is essentially, and this is the actual language, but I'll tell you what it means. It's She says that IDA's mandate is to provide an appropriate program. And, and she says, this is IDA's mandate, and school officials, school officials who conform to it need not worry about reimbursement claims, okay? <laughs> in English, what she's saying is if you follow the law and offer the child an appropriate program, including realizing if you can't offer an appropriate program within your own school district and the child requires an approved program elsewhere, 
then you won't have to worry about parents coming after you for reimbursement because they wouldn't have had to do it themselves. And so that's you know, really the crux of this uh, of this part of the Andrew F case is that the procedures are important, but they're not everything. What's what's important is that the procedures be followed to result in a substantively appropriate IEP. Whew. Well, my goodness, that's a mouthful. And I but such important information. And you know, on the other understood, um, there's another understood uh, resource which is called their um, the worksheet for improving your child's IEP, the way that they put it, that talking point is, it's not enough for the school to simply go through the motions and check boxes on the IEP. So that's a much shorter way of just saying what you said, Jen. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know me, I can't clear my throat in, in under a paragraph. It's, a, it's an occupational oh, hazard. Oh my goodness. So listen, there are other things that came out of this case, a few more, but we really want to encourage you to go to that understood.org site so that you can read this for yourself and use these important resources as tools to help you and your child's IEP. And as you move forward with um, really understanding what what the um, ear, the um, benchmarks are for a free and appropriate public education. So that's yes. right, Julie. And so, so verdict. Well, no, is it? Time I think for we're the on the rewind, aren't we? Oh, we're on the rewind. I'm, I'm moving. You are too moving quickly. way too quickly. Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to sum up the rewind. <laughs> okay, go for it. Provide a student with a free, appropriate public education. Yep. It's that yeah. simple. Sometimes we don't need to make it more than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. If, like Jen yep. said, if you follow the procedures, if you follow the substantive aspect of what is in a free, appropriate public education, probably not going to be in situations where school districts are are, are defending programs and parents are bringing hearings against them. You're going to greatly reduce it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to at least say that. Yep. Um, Follow Are we going to continue to have disputes um, between parents sure. and and school districts? Unfortunately, yes. But I think that you will school districts can greatly reduce um, litigation of any kind if they just follow um, the free appropriate public education. All right. So that brings us to the verdict, Jen. What's the verdict? The verdict on this one is uh, that, as my father used to say to me many times. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but they turn. Mm. They do. It took a long time, lots of years for the for the Andrew F. family to get to the Supreme Court and a lot of litigation. And the attorney who represented them had been fighting against that nearly more than de minimis standard for years before Andrew F. It persistence, persistence, persistence. We tell parents all of the time, this is not a sprint representing children with disabilities is not a sprint. It's not as an advocate and it certainly isn't for parents. It is an endurance yeah. test and um, you have to be persistent, but if you keep at it, you you usually will get what you need. So let's give Jack Robinson a nod, who yes. is the attorney who brought this case um, and, Absolutely. and uh, brought it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I have to just tell you a funny little story. Uh, a couple of years ago, he spoke at COPA, Council of Parent Advocates and Attorneys, at one of their annual um, conferences um, on the Andrew F. case. And I signed up for that for it. I was probably the first person who was sitting down. I felt like the biggest fangirl um, <laughs> you could ever. I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited to be sitting oh, in on yeah, this. Oh, yeah, he really and, was great. Right. 
and he was great. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, um, can I take my picture with you? (laughs) If our listeners had any doubt about what geeks we are, you you want to hear even worse, Julie, at another COPA conference, a a very esteemed um, legal professor whose name is Mark Weber, who wrote the treatise on special education, one of the best, I think the best treatise on special education out there for lawyers. And I just, every law review article he writes is brilliant. I just, I, I think he's amazing. And he spoke at COPA one year as well. And I was sitting way at the back of a ballroom and he um he 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 you know gave this wonderful presentation and I as soon as it, it ended everyone of course was beelining for him and I did as well and I walked up to him and I said I, I have to just say to you that I am such a fan I know I sound like a schoolgirl <laughs> but I, I love every law review article you've ever written and I think you're amazing and the gentleman to whom I said it said that's very nice but I'm not Professor Weber he's right over there. <laughs> So that was a little embarrassing. Whoops. Whoopsie. I think, Julie, are we ready to close the file? We're ready to close the file. And, um, you know, I hope you've appreciated and enjoyed our little nod to the Supremes. And, you know, on that note, no pun intended, (laughs) I am going to close the file on Andrew and the Supremes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed. <laughs>